I know some of us here feel that we should do more common uh, pulpit series together, but think of it another way. Usually, sometimes when we branch off, you get three different series for the same time and the value that you commit to. So it's a good deal. Eh? What's my deal to all of us here? I thought that we have not been able to do much on Wesleyan theology, particularly aspects to do with beliefs, practices, and uh, the life of John Wesley. So there's so much actually in history through the life of John Wesley that we can learn how uh, the Methodist people in the early days really captured the passion of loving God and loving one another. It, uh, it impacted and influenced them so much that it transformed the entire landscape of Christianity and, of course, the world. So, uh, I believe that this is really the passion in those days and it's also our division of our church. Do you know what's the vision of our church? The vision of our church is love God, love people. No. That's not the vision. Those are themes. Two years eh, gone. We started this to be a Methodist family after God's heart, right? Is there in a bulletin behind? Looks like we're going to start the whole thing all over again. It's to be a Methodist family after God's heart. And what does it mean? Really to love God, love people, disciple, serve. Clearly we have not done that enough, right? <laughs> now, but to really understand the Methodist movement and John Wesley, the life of what he has done, is really too much for us to cover. So what I'll do, I think just to give us a flavor uh, to go through, I'll work through a three-part sermon series, focusing on a living that was given to John Wesley. Now, the world of John Wesley was really filled with change, uncertainty. Uh, many Christians themselves, separated by social status, you have high-low, middle-class divisions during his time, and also many of them had different theological beliefs, much like who we are today. But to the ever-changing world that seeks to define what is important, what is most important to you as a priority of life, Jesus had one thing to say. Jesus said, this is the most important. In Mark 12, 29 to 31, and let me read it for here, uh, all of us here. Jesus says this, the most important one, Jesus said, is this here, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now Jesus, essentially through these two verses, laid out the foundation, the very basic foundation and instructions for good and faithful life for every single Christian believer throughout every age and generation. 
It is given to all believers, all Christians, young and old, rich and poor, powerful or weak, regardless of your theological beliefs. This is the blueprint of life, the blueprint of how Christians ought to live. John Wesley took this blueprint as his life, taught it, practiced it, lived it out his entire life as three basic questions, three simple rules, right? Three simple rules. What was the result? The result was transformation of societies throughout England into the rest of the world. Today, we here are beneficiaries, we are beneficiaries of this blueprint of his life. It is up to us now as Methodists, people known as Methodists, to take it, teach it, practice it until it becomes a natural way of life. Many who have followed it, uh, they have both found themselves transformed and they are transforming others when they practice this way of life. So are you ready as Methodists to learn what this blueprint, the blueprint of John Wesley, these three simple rules? You're not very convincing, are you? <laughs> so what are these rules? What are these rules? I'll cover them over three different sermons. They are do no harm, do good, stay in love with God. Do no harm, do good, stay in love with God. Now this sermon series sits in line with our church team for this year on Love People and I hope that you can grow together uh, as we practice these rules and learn them. Now before I begin, I need to give credit. I say that the bulk of the content and structure of uh, these three sermons, the next three sermons I'm going to preach, including this one, will be based entirely from this book by the American bishop, former American bishop of the United Methodist Church, uh, Bishop Reuben Job. He has since passed on two years ago, but his book, The Three Simple Rules, A Western Way of Living, is really a simple, a really good book to get if you want to learn and follow. It's available in the uh, Christian bookstores around, um, and I'll leave them to you to go find out more. So as we begin our first rule, do no harm. May the Lord be with you. I'm going to cover scripture later, so as we read, so I won't present scripture now. Uh, I, I won't read the scripture now. So let's join me in prayer. Okay? Father, teach us to know your ways and to obey your call as we study your holy word. Humble your servant today as I speak, and may the words of my mouth be clear, and the meditations of all our hearts here be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now some of us would remember that in my previous sermon, I spoke about confessions, right? Uh, we, ha- we ought to practice a biblical way of confessing to one another. You remember, some of you here? You heard that sermon? Yes? I gave out a few examples about how people write their confessions anonymously. Let me share a few more with us here today, okay? so that you can understand our human condition and see if you can relate to them. This is the first one. I was at the airport, somebody wrote, eh? I was at the airport the other day and witnessed this lady checking in in the first and business class lounge. She really became a tyrant and she started to really nitpick on the porter that handled her luggage. 
Not only was she ordering him around, she seemed to be very picky, particular on how her luggage had to be carried this way and not touch the ground. And at the same time, she was belittling and criticizing the young man's every single move. Surprisingly, the porter didn't seem to be troubled by the lady's verbal abuse and continued to serve and put up with her whims and fancy. After somewhat a very public, very sightly or unsightly, very open ordeal, the angry lady finally strutted into the check-in area. Now I went over to the young man and said, Wow, how do you put up with such injustice? He said, that's easy. You see, she's going to New York, but her bags are going to China. <laughs> you laugh. Means you agree with it. <laughs> Here's another one. Eh? Horrible people. <laughs> Here's another one. Whenever he does something horrible or mean, I do spiteful little things that he never know about. I have scrubbed the toilet bowl with his toothbrush, blew my nose on his pillow, stuffed dirty socks in his pillowcase, spat in his food, flicked cigarette ashes into his coffee, and even peed in his shoes. He has never known of all these evil things I've done, and we've been married for eight years. I warned him early, don't mess with me, I'm a woman. My wife is not here, she's in Washington, so yeah. Okay. Maybe in the quietness of your heart, think about it. Uh, do these two stories sound familiar? Somewhat familiar? If you're honest enough to admit yourself, when you witness some form of injustice, either on your own self or on someone else that's weak or vulnerable, a very natural response a uh, response might come is either to seek revenge or probably um, hope that maybe you hope that somebody will do it, nah, but ten times harder, right? Now, where do we get it from? Are we created this way? What do you think? Well, I've done some research and I've uh, came across a few articles on human condition when it comes to revenge. One of the articles that caught my attention was really this one. And I'll just quote a few sentences uh, for us. I found this really, really interesting. It says this, and this is where I got it from. Uh, it is so simple, really, the problem of violence. People who are hurt, hurt people. The motivation is revenge, not because human beings are fundamentally evil, but because vengeance is a part of survival mechanics of a complex social species. The roots of vengeance begin in childhood. In the course of normal development, children learn how to manage the desire to get even for the hurts to their body, their sense of identity, or their cherished beliefs. In interaction with family members or peers, children learn the rules of fair play, the role of apology, and how to cooperate with others. But when an attack comes to them, whether it's physical or emotional or even sexual, that uh, th when they experience this, it will provoke naturally a retaliatory response. If nothing, 
is done to mitigate the hurt or the injustice experienced. And when they do that, they will feel fully morally just in their outrage. That's what the report says. Uh, essentially, this is what it is saying. Uh, okay? If a kid, you observe this behavior in children, if a kid hits another kid okay, and never says sorry, the kid will hunt them back. You see this, right? It happens. Uh, okay? But if I hunt them or I hit somebody and I say sorry, the sorry is the mitigating factor. So I won't gonna hit back. That's what the report says. But if I hit, the report says this also, if I hit, okay, and, uh, sorry, if you hit me and I hit you harder, which usually which is the case, right, I hit you like three times harder, okay, and you ask me, why you hit so hard? The response would be, you hit me first. And you never say sorry. Does it sound familiar? Essentially, this is human condition. This is what the report says based on research. That's how we grew up and how we're conditioned. Okay? You're following me so far? So what the article is saying is that we are conditioned from young to deal with hurt, with another hurt, whether equal or greater. That's how we are conditioned from young. Okay? This is also somewhat found in Scripture when Jesus recorded for us in the passage that we are going to study today. Uh, let me just start this off here. It says that in Matthew 5.18, You have heard what was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Jesus was actually quoting from religious leaders in his time, the people who were teaching. They had been practicing this rule, this law for years, essentially basing out the teachings from Moses in the Old Testament. If you look at the Old Testament, you'll find even phrases that says this. Like, for example, in Exodus, in Leviticus, in Deuteronomy, it says the same phrase appears. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Deuteronomy says, show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. I know some of us here think, uh, you know, eh, that means it's biblical to seek revenge. Uh. Even scriptures support it, right? Well, yes, uh, immediately some people say. <laughs> I used to think so. Until I read the commentaries. Then I learned that these laws in the Old Testament, they are actually saving grace. Do you know? How can it be? I don't understand. Now, let me say, let me explain. Uh, this law... This law is one of the oldest law known to religious leaders. It's also known as uh, Lex Talionis. It's in Latin. I may not be able to get it right. Uh, Lex stands for, it's Latin for law. Talion is the Latin by which you get the word, the English word retaliation. Retaliation. Or, hantambek, uh, retaliation. So this is the law of retaliation otherwise known as laws, the law of tit-for-tat. Tit-for-tat, okay? According to biblical scholars, this law started out as a law of mercy. Law of mercy. Because it began in a time in Old Testament where uh, people were organized according to tribes. You know, the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Reuben, they are all organized in tribes. And 
There are a lot of tribes rivalry that exist. And people took the law of revenge into their own hands. So instead, eye for an eye, if you touch my eye, I dig out both your eyes. That was what it's for. That was how people is. You hunt on me once, uh, I will kill your entire family. If one of the daughters of the tribe gets outraged, it is massacre time for your entire clan. So this law of retaliation is actually mercy. It is saving grace to the offender. It advocated limited vengeance. It draws the boundary of how far you can go. Limited vengeance as a form of justice so that you don't take it all the way. So that was what the intent of the law is. Now, by the time of Jesus, by the time of Jesus, this practice has long evolved. It has no longer been dealt out. Eh? Uh, the retaliation is no longer, or the offense is no longer paid out in terms of physical killing. Because one life to one life eh, is two lives there. The economy suffers, you know. At the rate that it's going, eh, who is going to earn? You take it out on one another, right? The population will shrink, right? Cannot, right? So, instead of repaying by physical injury, monetary compensation has taken over the repayment. So, an eye will cost how much? A life will cost how much? Loss of limbs will cost how much? So, the repayment will be in a form of monetary uh, replacement. And you can see that practice still carries on today. So anyone who commits intentional or, or, sorry, unintentional or accident, accidental harm would appreciate the law of limited vengeance carried out in cash advancements or cash repayments. Okay. So what's the issue here? What is the issue here? On the surface, the law seems to work in general to preserve justice and compensation, right? Correct? That seems to work. And then, somewhat in laws uh, that govern countries like ours, uh, using penalties, you will think that the law works to prevent harm. Do you think so? It seems fair, because that's how governments are structured today. Do you think it works? This system, the law of retaliation, the law of tit for tat, work? prevent harm at all? Very interesting question for especially those who are studying law or in practicing. Let me park that aside. Okay? In the days of John Wesley, in the days of John Wesley, Wesley saw how harm came to the poor. Often, the rich could afford the repayments of the offense while the poor were constantly suffering. Now you see it, okay? Wesley studied actually the causes of poverty and found that as Britain moved from an agricultural society to an industrial society, the small farmers were getting poorer and poorer while the rich were getting richer and richer. Harm came to the poor in the form of the rich bullying the poor the weak and the marginalized. The rich were spending indulgently on luxuries. Resources that could help the poor were often wasted by those who had money. The use of distilled alcohol, the rich had horses, 
um, and they had multiple horses, they were driving up the price of food and grain. So in essence, the law of retaliation, not only did it not work for the poor to repay injustice, it actually created even more injustice. The rich could always afford to pay for their crimes, whether intentional or not, but the poor will always suffer under the rich. Now you get it? Jesus knew about this in his time. It was already happening. The rich were paying off the fines and the crimes they committed while the poor were being starved, marginalized. What was God's brilliant solution to this? No one would have expected it. What came out of the words of Christ shocked everyone. And here we come to our study passage for today. Let us see what Jesus said on how a believer should respond in Matthew 5. Let me just read it for us here. Jesus was responding. He said, You have heard that it was said, Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That was the law of the tit for tat that Jesus was quoting. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. You've heard this, right? What is Jesus saying here? What is Jesus saying here? Now, according to William Barclay, let me just pause for here before I move to the rest. i just explain this. What is Jesus? According to William Barclay, most people are right-handers. How do you slap the right cheek? You think about it. Right hand, slap, left cheek, right? Correct? So whenever you slap somebody, uh, you've got to use the left hand. Uh. doesn't make sense, alright? Okay? So many people think that it's literal. It's not easy to slap the uh, right cheek uh, with the right hand. You can only slap it with the back of your hand. This is actually a term, a sign of insult. What Jesus is saying here eh, is actually this. When someone insults you, not slap you, <laughs> insults you, okay, you are not to retaliate with another insult. No. Okay? That's what his, the verse is saying. Why? I'll come to that later. Let's go through the verse first and see what other crazy ideas Jesus is trying to say here. Okay. So when somebody, when, if someone slaps you in the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. Because if somebody insults you, do not, do not respond with an insult. If anyone, carry on verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat. This is actually quite deep huh, in this in his reference huh, for the the Jewish community in his time, particularly the religious leaders. So according to William Barclay, same thing. Typically a Jew in his time would have a shirt and a coat. A tunic or a shirt a tunic is like the inner garments. Okay? Then the coat that covers outside, it is a cover by day, a blanket by night. The coat, uh, the Jewish practice is that if you ever, ever take a person's coat, you must return it by the end of day. Because it is the only thing that covers him at night that protects him, the coat. It is not ethical for you to take it. Okay? But Jesus says here, essentially what he's saying, if someone sues you for your shirt, give up your coat as well. What he's trying to say, in other words, when someone robs you of your privilege or your right, surrender your entitlements. Don't retaliate. 
when someone robs you of your right, surrender your entitlement. Interesting, huh? Okay, let's carry on. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. If someone bullies you and takes advantage of your goodwill, this verse is not talking about sexual abuses or immoral violence or things like that. It's talking about if someone bullies you, taking advantage of your goodwill, be prepared to give double portion of generosity. Verse 42 says, Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This means that I've got to give to everybody that come ask me, especially the B voice later, right? Correct? <laughs> no. Okay? It's not saying that. The principle here is practice generous giving, but do not discriminate. That's what the verse is saying. Don't say yes to your friend while you turn away the beggars in the streets that ask from you. Don't discriminate. That's what I'm saying. Okay? Can you see where Jesus is going with this school of thoughts? Do you understand what he's trying to drive at? He is aiming for social transformation. Jesus realized that the law of retaliation, the law of tit for tat, can punish injustice, but it doesn't prevent the harm from happening. The problem wasn't the law. It was with the person. The only way to solve the problem is not to counter harm with harm. No. It's in fact to do the very opposite. It is to do no harm. Do no harm. Jesus continues to teach, and this is where you see it happening. Why he explained in verse 43. It says here, but you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This was what they practiced in those days. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on evil and the good. He sends, rains on, he sends rain on the righteous, the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, if you love those who love you, bracket, I, I tell you what does that mean. In other words, if you practice favoritism, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? I'm not even a tax collector doing that. If you greet only your own people, that means you practice discrimination. Eh? What are you doing more than others? Don't, do not even pagans do that. Therefore be, therefore, be perfect. Or be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. These are the words of Christ. These are words of Christ. Now, I don't really have time to explain these texts in detail, but what Jesus is saying this is to all believers across all walks of life, whether you are rich or poor, whether you are young or old, you are not to love only those you love. You are called to never harm anyone, especially your enemies, but to pray for them. But more importantly, Jesus said, no, forbid discrimination against anyone, rich or poor, young or old, male or female, able or disabled, etc. As a child of God, 
You are to be perfect in righteousness and love, just like God is. You are to imitate Christ. As a child of God, if someone insults you, if someone slaps you on the, on the right cheek, if someone insults you, you are to do no harm, no speaking evil in return, no gossiping. If someone robs you of your rights, do no harm through evil plots or schemes. Why? Because when the day you become a Christian, you surrendered your rights to Christ. You surrendered and you gave up your rights to the world. As a child of God, you are now subjected to the rights according to God, not of the world. Right? As a child of God, we are to do no harm by discriminating against one another. That is what Jesus is advocating. Jesus knew the only way, the only way to stop bullying of the weak, stopping the harm from continuing, is not through the law of revenge, not through the law of retaliation, or not through the law of tit for tat. But when someone stops the harm in return, John Wesley understood this principle from Jesus in this passage, and he composed the general rules for the societies, the bands, and the classes of the early Methodists. That do no harm was the first rule, the first rule that the Methodists must follow. You can see why these rules are here, and I'm going to read to you. This is something that uh, when they want to become Methodists, they are on probation. This is the first rule they have to follow, and there are six of them in the uh, general rules for societies, bands, and classes. And let me read them out to all of us here, and you can see the flavor of it. Okay? This is in his time. He said, these are the rules penned down. Neither buy nor sell anything on the Lord's day. What does it mean? It means... Don't be so fixated in earning money till you need to work all seven days. Do no harm to yourself and do no harm to those who labor for you. Okay? That's what the, essentially the rule says. To taste no spiritus liquor, no dram of any kind unless prescribed by a physician. No self-harm. No drunk, no drunkenness, no fighting. Right? No indulgence. To be at word, both buying and selling. What does it mean? When you are making a deal and transaction, doing business, your yes must be a yes. Don't twist your word, no double meaning. Don't say yes to this, then in the end, fulfillment, another item comes out. Be honest in your business transaction. To be at one word, a word, both buying and selling. Be honest. Okay? Next one. To pawn nothing, no, not to save a life. Now, this is interesting. It's only applicable for uh, someone in those days where the poor tend to pawn their products. You know what is pawning, right? Correct? Today, we tang pua, or some of us still have. You essentially you know, say, I, how much is this item? Give me the amount, then I pay back and redeem it back. It says to pawn nothing. Why? Because, because usually only those who need money, the poor, do it. And you are actually... Charging interest off, you know, the poor. And this is really, uh, in a way, unethical to a certain extent. So, John Wesley said this, you know, don't, to pawn nothing at all. 
No, not even to save a life. Because uh, these are the poor, are the marginalized. Next, not to mention the fault of anyone behind his back and to stop those short that do that. No gossiping. Do no harm. Do not talk bad about others. And the sixth one is interesting, particularly to all the ladies. To wear no needless ornaments, such as rings, earrings, necklaces, lace, ruffles. What does it say? No need for luxury items, because why? You can bless others for your, with your excess. Of course, these rules are applicable those days. You understand the general context and the intent. Okay, I'll leave it to you. Okay? Now, as you can see, these rules make the Methodist a Methodist. Those who cannot observe these rules then are denied membership. If John Wesley to be alive today, uh, okay, I don't know what happened to our church, you know. Our membership class, uh, wow, very jealous. I also maybe cannot survive, you know. But preaching this sermon really challenged me. In each and every generation and society, the rule of tit for tat is always practiced, but somehow it has not been able to produce a generation of people that truly embrace love. Really, you look at any country, we have laws governing. I think our country has really good laws governing our country. But are the people more generous, more loving, more kind, more gracious? John Wesley's rule, do no harm, changed lives and transformed society. Let me give you a story of how he practiced it and how it works. No man in his day experienced more mob attack, you know, mob attack than John Wesley, groups of people. Now, in 1973, Methodist societies began to spout and grow all over England. And John Wesley frequently traveled to preach to them. You know, when they, they, it's like a movement. And in the town, suddenly somebody that has experienced something go over there, they start a society. Then when John Wesley gets to hear about it, he will visit those towns and preach to them. So it is very much you know, uh, self-driven with people who adopt that particular practice. However, his meetings were often disrupted by mobs or rioters. And uh, sometimes, even actually it's quite often, that these mobs uh, would be paid off by local churches, uh, typically of a higher class. And usually there will be some of, uh, there will be a chief leader that will ring people inside other men, and they'll turn up at some of these meetings, and sometimes up to a hundred people, just to stir violence and to disrupt the meetings. But John Wesley would forbid any Methodist to retaliate. The rule of do no harm was strictly enforced at all times. Now in a diary, in, John's, uh, in, in, in Wesley's diary dated Friday 16 September 1743, I should put it up there in terms of the scripting. Um, he, was, he recorded this account. He was preaching at St. Ives in Cornwall, England. He says this, The mob of the town burst into the room and created much disturbances, roaring and striking those that stood in their way as though the legion himself had possessed them. He tried to persuade his uh, people to stand still, but in the midst of the zeal of some and the fear of others, it was chaotic. So in finding that the uproar increased and increased, kept increasing, 
he went into the midst of the mob and brought the head, the leader of the mob, into his study. He recorded this to say that he was allowed, the mob leader was allowed to give him one blow to the side of Wesley's head. Kabish. After which, Wesley spoke and reasoned with him till he grew milder and milder and milder. And eventually, he went to quiet his own companions. This is one of the many stories that Wesley dealt with mob attack. There was another one that when he that accounted that there were two he received two blessings. <laughs> the fellow who hit him was so so guilty conscious until he became his bodyguard. Wesley practiced the do no harm rule and became a model example for the people called Methodist. Someone asked me a few weeks ago when I preached the previous sermon example of the Methodist confession. He said, do you think anyone can do it today? Let me say this. John Wesley didn't force people to be Methodist or didn't force anyone to practice the three simple rules. People willingly committed themselves to be Methodist to practice the three simple rules because they simply love God enough to put Him first. John Wesley, in his brilliance, understood what Jesus said, that the way to solve injustice, the way to resolve many of this harm for one another, even through social injustice, is not through the balancing of the law of retaliation, but to point people to Christ by imitating Christ himself. To desire nothing but God, to love God with your whole heart, your mind, your soul and strength and then to love one another. God first is the key to solving social injustice. John Wesley believed this with all his heart. And we can tell this from one of his greatest quotes ever. Let me show you this quote. And he said this, Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. I care not a straw whether they may be clergymen or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. The first rule, what is it? Do no harm. Let us pray. Gracious God, open our eyes to love what you love so that we will do no harm. Yet, Lord, so many times we do harm, sometimes unintentionally. We know you want us to love your creation, to love one another, to love our friends, our neighbors, our enemies, our strangers, and ourselves. Lord, help us to be more aware of the harm we do. When our anger, our indifference, our indignation, or our greed caused us, uh, causes us to want to do harm, give us strength, courage, and resist, Lord. 
when we, th- when we think that you are asking for the impossible, Lord, give us the mindfulness and strength to do no harm. Lord, uphold us during this season of Lent as we seek to follow your commandments and abide in your ways. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.